0: Thanks for watching today at wildwoodchurch.com. Now here's today's message. The last three weeks we've been here in Romans chapter 8, 4 through 11. We've seen that we have a new identity in Christ. We have a new position in Christ. We're no longer in the flesh, but we are in the Spirit. And we know that we're in the Spirit if the Spirit of God dwells in us. That is, if we have been born again of the Spirit, we know that the Spirit of God dwells in us. And if the spirit of God dwells in us, then there is life in us because of the righteousness of Christ. Even if, according to verse 10, the body is dead because of sin. Even if our body is dead because of sin, the the impulses of our body want to pull us into sin and and the effects of sin are manifest in our aging, tired, uh, broken bodies. The Spirit is life because of righteousness if, in fact, the Spirit of God dwells in us. So death may surround us, but life is filling us. But there's more to this amazing story of life from death, than just what the Holy Spirit does in us. And I spent last week describing much of what the Holy Spirit does to bring life to our bodies here and now. But today, let's look at what the, life, uh, what the Spirit wants to do in giving us life in the hereafter. Let's read Romans chapter 8, verses 4 through 11, then I'll pray, and then we'll jump in. Paul says, In order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us, who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Who dwells in you? Let's pray. Oh, Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the promise, Lord, that the Holy Spirit not only gives life to us here and now, not only does He restore joy and hope, and and not only does He purify us and and cause us to love you and and to want to to walk according to Your ways, but Lord, You promise that. On the last day, he's going to raise us up in wonderful, glorious bodies. I pray, Father, that you would help us as we look now at your word to understand and to believe the promises that you've made for us. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so I want you to notice here that verse 11 begins with a similar surprise as verse 10. Look at verse 9, Paul refers to the Spirit as the Spirit of God and the Spirit of Christ. And then in verse 10, he seamlessly switches over to Christ. And now in verse 11, he changed it up, and he says, the Spirit of him who raised Christ from the dead. So my question is, who raised Jesus from the dead? The Father did. You see that it's passive. Jesus, sa- It says here that he, the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead. So Jesus is passive in his resurrection. Who raised Jesus from the dead? The Father raised Jesus from the dead. And so the Holy Spirit is here now called the spirit of him who raised Jesus or the spirit of the Father. So Paul refers to the Holy Spirit as the spirit of God, the spirit of Christ, Christ, and now the spirit of the Father. And what I want you to notice here is the, the absolute unity of the triune God, the absolute unity of God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit, perfectly aligned in complete agreement, total unity, perfectly distinct, and yet perfectly united. Isn't it comforting for, to you to know that God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit are perfectly united in your salvation? That, that, there's no, that there's no disagreement. Moms and dads, you ever, you, ever, uh, you ever have an argument and your kids want you to do something and, and, and one of you agrees and one of you disagrees? I remember as a kid, I remember as a kid, you know, I pit one parent against another, right? And, and they, they eventually got wise to it. And parents, hopefully you've gotten wise to that. But there is complete agreement among the Godhead in our unity, uh, excuse me, in our salvation. There's complete unity in our salvation. They are perfectly aligned around the mission of God. I want, you to, I want you to grapple with this for a moment. The Trinity is perfectly aligned around the mission of God. God the Father sent his Son into the world to be the propitiation for your sin, to pay the price for your sin in order that you would be adopted as children of God. And then the son ascends, goes back to the father, is exalted and reigns on high, and he and the father send the Holy Spirit. He and the father send the Holy Spirit to point us to Jesus, to glorify the father The Holy Spirit causes us to love the Lord our God and gives us new life. The Trinity, the triune God, is perfectly united around the mission of God. Now, this may not be Paul's main point here, but it begs the question of what kind of oneness Jesus desired for his church. When he spoke in John 17, that high priestly prayer, <clears throat> listen to the words of Jesus as he prays for his followers, and not just his disciples, but all those, he said, who would believe their testimony. That's you and I. Jesus is praying for his church, the whole body, from, for all time. He's praying for us, and he says, He says, the glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one even as we are one, I in them and you in me, that they may be perfectly one. Why? For what purpose? So that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you loved me. So again, this may not be Paul's main point here, but, but, it, but I think that it, it contributes to helping us understand what Jesus meant when he said, I want my church to be one. Just as you and I are one, I want my church to be one. So that, and I said this at a pastor meeting the other day, as, as I was un, un, unpacking this, You see, just as Paul goes to the Spirit of God, the Spirit of Christ, Christ, the Spirit of Father, back and forth, what would it look like if the church, at least as it relates to understanding the primary purpose in life, someone could say Brian or Aaron. And it doesn't matter who's speaking because he and I have the very same purpose in life, ultimately. That that our primary purpose sense of what's right, our priority, is the mission of God in the world. And I, and I think I, I wrestle with this idea. How messed up are we if we can go, the mission of, of God is the most important thing to God, the most important thing to Jesus. <clears throat> Thank you. If the mission of God is the most important thing to God, the father, the most important thing to Jesus Christ, his son, the most important thing to the Holy Spirit. And we're like, yeah, I mean, it's up there. It ranks top 10, at least, right? Jesus prayed for his church. He prayed for you in the garden in this prayer that we would be one in what way that we would have the the same hobbies that our church would be rallied around hobbies no the mission of God that's what Jesus wants us to be united in perfectly united so that the only thing that matters to us really matters to us is the mission of God and what is the mission of God Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners. That's it. That's it. Now, does your job matter? Yes. You need to provide for your family. Does your family matter? Yes. You need to raise up disciples. You need to witness in your, in your workplace. You need to be the hardest workers in your workplace. Does your school education matter? Absolutely. Respect your teachers, professors, Do what the Lord wants you to do so that you can go out into the world and make an impact in the world for the glory of God and proclaim the name of Jesus. Everything is subjected to the mission of God. I hope you agree. I hope that we are one in that assertion. Yes. Now, again, that may not be the main point here, but it does teach us something of what Jesus had in mind. And in fact, what we're going to learn as we look at the rest of Romans is Paul wants us to force, to, to force our, our view downrange. Think eternal perspective. I, I, I want you to, to lift your eyes above the here and now, the, the temporal, the earthly, and I want you to look beyond. I want you to see in light of eternity, and I want you to pursue unity. That's the rest of Romans. And I think it's built upon the unity that he's just established here, even if he didn't mean to. He did. He showed us the unity of the Godhead and how silly and foolish of the church to think that we would be pleasing God and be so distracted around everything else except the mission of God. Paul says, if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. <clears throat> so not only does the Holy Spirit promise that he's going to give life to our, our spirit, you know, in, in his body of flesh, in his body of death, in the life here and now, but through the spirit, the father is going to do for us what he did for Christ. Namely, he's going to give us resurrection from the dead. Transformational life on the inside right now, a transformed outside yet to come. That's where we are. Life on the inside now, waiting for the transformation of our bodies that is yet to come. Now, when Paul says our mortal bodies, he conveys the reality of, that what we currently have is wasting away. This is what he said in 1 Corinthians, or 2 Corinthians chapter 4. He says, So we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. I was talking with one of our sweet, dear senior saints out in the fireside room this morning. And I said, You look beautiful. And, <laughs> oh, her eyes lit up. And she was taken aback and and she thanked me and she said, I'm trying. (laughs) And, And I said, you do, you look beautiful. And she said, this old body. And I said, you know what? We're going to be talking about this old body this morning. You know, if you're young, you may not think, well, this old body, but at some point you're going to begin to think this old body. As you begin to have week-long backaches because you slept wrong, <laughs> because you sneezed wrong, <laughs> because you bent and lifted something wrong, right? The reality is that our outer self is wasting away. Our hair is turning gray, no matter whether, how much we try to hide that or embrace it. Our hair is turning gray. Uh, we lose muscle mass, we lose flexibility, we lose uh, memory. The, the outer self, the body, the physical body is wasting away. This is, this is life. And what a blessing to be able to experience aging, right? Because then we get to share wisdom. We get to invest in younger generations. We get to invest in eternity, amen? Your, your age is a gift, from the Lord and some of you have been (laughs) well-gifted oh man the Bible calls it a good old age but look even though the outer self is wasting away we don't lose heart we don't lose heart why we have our eyes on eternity Our inner self is being renewed day by day, and we are waiting for Jesus to raise up our mortal bodies and and for the spirit to give us life. What we anticipate in the resurrection, and what I want to do here is I want to just kind of do a bit of a survey of the New Testament of, of, of what does the resurrection look like? What should we expect with the resurrection and what impact should it have on our life? So we're going we're to be blowing through some verses here to give you an idea of, of what the Bible teaches about this promise that the Spirit is going to give us life in the end. So what do we anticipate in the resurrection of our mortal or lowly bodies? Listen to what Paul says in Philippians chapter 3 verses 20 and 21. Paul says, but our citizenship is in heaven... Pause here. Again, I want you to see and sense the, 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 the pull to lift up your eyes off of what you can see, off of what's right in front of you, and to look with an eternal perspective. Our citizenship is in heaven. And from it, we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body, by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. So Jesus' miraculous, exalted, kingly power is going to turn your mortal body, your lowly body, your old body, into something glorious. Now, Paul gives an illustration of what that looks like. Because, you know, we think, well, man, what, it, it, am I going to get arthritis? Eternity is a long time. You know, I mean, am I, going to have, am I going to have to have glasses in heaven? What about dentures? Right? So when we think about what is going to come out of the ground, Paul blows our mind with a simple illustration in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. He says, but someone will ask, how were the dead ra- uh, raised? With what kind of body do they come? You ever wonder that? What is your body going to be like? Maybe some of you don't even think about the fact that you're going to have a body. Why? Because you you kind of have the sentimental thought that like you're an angel or something when you die. No, you don't get angel wings. Angels have wings. You will have a body. All right? So with what kind of body will they come? Now, Paul says, you foolish person. A bit harsh, but... That's what he said. You foolish person. Now he's arguing with people that are arguing against the resurrection. What you sow does not come to life unless it dies. And what you sow is not the body that is to be, but a bare kernel, perhaps of wheat or of some other grain. So here's the illustration, all right? Ag community, we understand this. Corn is high. Soy looks good. I, I was driving down I 80 and I saw the waves of green. I thought, man, it's amazing. We have waves in the Midwest. <clears throat> Soy fields are full. What do we put in the ground? We put a seed in the ground. It's a bare kernel or a piece of grain that goes into the ground. And Paul's like, that's your earthly body. That's this. But he continues so it is with the resurrection of the dead. What is sown is perishable. What is raised is imperishable. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. Any of you frustrated with the limitations of your body? I am. All your frustrations... All your cares and the ailments will all be gone. And this body that you have inhabited for the entirety of your life, though it's wasting away, is gonna go into the ground like a seed goes into the ground. And what's going to come out is something glorious, similar to a seed going into the ground and producing a stalk of corn. What is that going to look like? No idea. But the the Old Testament and the New Testament describe this as radiant sunlight. Whatever it is that, that comes out of the ground after the resurrection is going to be more glorious than you can possibly imagine. And it will be imperishable. Meaning it's going to be your body forever and it will never break and it will never age and it will never waste away. The resurrection of our bodies is a source of encouragement and has been for the church from the very beginning. Paul wrote in 6.5, Romans 6.5, For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. Look at that word. We shall certainly be united in a resurrection like his. There's certainty. And what is the certainty of our resurrection based on? The resurrection of Jesus Christ. And that is Paul's point in 1 Corinthians 15. That's where he argues. He says, you foolish person, right? Because they're arguing, well, there is no resurrection from the dead. And he calls them foolish people. And here's why it's foolish to not believe the resurrection. Our future resurrection is based upon or anchored in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Look at what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, 14 through 17. If Christ has not been raised... Then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. For if the dead are not raised, if if the resurrection is is folklore, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. So is the future bodily resurrection of the saints essential? Absolutely. Absolutely. It's based on the resurrection of Jesus. And if Jesus hasn't been raised from the dead, then we are still in our sins. He was just a prophet who died and stayed dead like myriad others. We are claiming, and I want to be clear, the Christian faith is claiming that dead bodies will come out of the grave. That your body and my body will be resurrected. And no, it does not matter. I said this last week. It does not matter if you were buried at sea, if you were burned to ashes, if you were if you were uh, torn apart by beasts. Doesn't matter. Your your body will be resurrected on that day. It seems crazy, right? We can admit that. Seems kind of crazy. And it would be crazy if it hasn't already happened. You tracking with me? So how do we know that Jesus has been raised from the dead? How do we know that? Because our faith hinges upon this. And if it hasn't happened, then this is all folly. It's futile. It's worthless. So how do we know it has? Paul says, again, in 1 Corinthians 15, verses 3 through 8, says, for I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received. Let me pause here. Man, it's just the Lord, the, the word is living and active. I delivered to you as of first importance. So what was most important to the apostle Paul? What is about to tell us? It's the essence of the gospel. Here's the most important thing. I'm going to tell you, I'm going to to give you a message of the Lord. I'm an apostle sent to, to get, not me, I want to be clear here. We love sound bites. Someone's going to crop that out and sound like me saying that. No, Paul is saying, I'm an apostle sent here to proclaim to you the word of God, a message of God. And the most important thing for me to say to you is the gospel. He says... I deliver to you as of first importance what I also received that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. When it says in accordance with the Scriptures, what he's saying is that the Old Testament predicted this. This is not a, a new religion, this is fulfillment of the Old Testament. And that he appeared to Cephas, that's Peter, then to the twelve, the disciples. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time. Now watch this. Listen, Paul is speaking as an educated, thoughtful, logical man who wrote what many law schools still consider to be, Romans, the greatest legal treaties ever written. And he's writing to people that are Greek-minded, And he says to them, most of whom are still alive. So I come to you and I tell you that someone has been raised from the dead in Texas. And they visited with with 500 people in Texas. And I saw him and and, and he was dead and now he's alive and and he's gone there. What would you as logical, thoughtful people want to do? Go talk to the eyewitnesses. Hundreds of eyewitnesses that were still alive as Paul wrote this letter to the Corinthians. And those apostles, the eyewitnesses, what did they do with what they saw? Acts chapter 4, verse 33 tells us what the apostles did. And with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them. Now, I want you to note that these apostles saw with their eyes Jesus who died, was buried, and on the third day rose again. They saw him with their own eyes. And then they paid dearly to proclaim to the world that Jesus is alive. Most of the apostles were brutally martyred, tortured. Now, I want you to think, let's re, come let us reason together. I want you to reason. Who dies for a lie that they made up when simply admitting that they've lied Sets them free. Many of the apostles and many of the first church paid dearly proclaiming what they saw with their own eyes. Furthermore, I want you to note that Acts, from where we get Acts 4:3, Acts was written by a physician. Are physicians typically given to myths and fairy tales? especially as it relates to the life and death of a body, that's like their profession, right? Now listen, I know that most of you already believe this and you're like, well, why are you preaching like this to us? So that you can share this and defend your faith, right? If you're like, I already know this, I already believe it, I already already know that Jesus was raised from the dead. Now I'm giving you ammunition to help you understand how to defend your faith and give a reason for the hope that you have in Jesus Christ, this is not backwoods folklore. Now I want you to take it from Jesus' own mouth recorded in Revelation chapter one. He said, fear not, I am the first and the last and the living one. I died and behold, I am alive forevermore. And I have the keys of death and Hades. That is why Paul can so confidently say in 1 Corinthians fifteen twenty, but in fact, but in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. And watch, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. What does he mean by that? He means that because Jesus has been raised from the dead, you and I who have faith in Christ will also be raised from the dead. Christ, the resurrection of Christ, is the basis of our confidence that we also will be resurrected and indeed is the basis of our entire faith. In fact, the the resurrection of Jesus is the assurance that God accepted his sacrifice on our behalf. Because the gospel says, you are a sinner, you have transgressed against a holy God and you have incurred, earned, warranted, His just wrath. But by faith in Jesus, in his work on the cross, you can have eternal life and peace with God. That's the gospel. That's the assertion. So how do we know that God agrees with that? that God says, yep, your faith in my son is all that is required for you to have eternal life with me in a real place called heaven, the resurrection. Jesus died and God raised him from the dead as an assurance or a seal or an affirmation that that payment was received. Amen? You ever, want, you, ever pay off a, you ever pay off a debt and you're like, hey, you got a confirmation on that? Can I get a receipt for that? Can you give me a confirmation number? Right, why? Because we want to know that payment was successful and Jesus' death and burial is demonstrated to have been successful by the resurrection. Here's what Paul says. Because we have fixed... I'm sorry this is this is in Acts 17:31 because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed and of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead the assurance that you and I will stand in the judgment of God is the resurrection of Jesus Christ We know that Jesus' teachings and his sacrifice are right and true because God raised him from the dead. You know, there have been countless religious leaders that die and stay dead. And those that said, you know what, I am the way, I'm the answer, Uh, you should look to me, and they die and they stay dead, what do we do with them? We ignore them because they stay dead. Jesus, on the other hand, was raised from the dead as an assurance by God that his payment is effectual for your sin. And that is the most basic confession of a Christian. There is no Christian that denies the resurrection. You cannot deny the resurrection and be a Christian. You can be moral, you can be devout, you can be a part of a church, but you cannot be a Christian apart from belief in the resurrection. Why? Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. You will be saved. Confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord. I submit my life to you, Lord. I give my life to you. And I believe in my heart In other words, this isn't an intellectual thing. I'm not assenting. I'm not just like, okay, well, my parents taught me this. And so sure, I can repeat on Easter Sunday, he is risen. He is risen indeed. I can do that. No, belief in the heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Faith is belief in the resurrection of Jesus. And because Jesus was raised, you and I will be raised. John eleven twenty five 25, and 26, Jesus said, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Now watch, watch. From the words of Jesus, do you believe this? That's the key. Do you believe this? I want to draw your attention now to the future tense in verse 11 of Romans chapter 8. The resurrection power of the Holy Spirit says, will also give life to your mortal bodies. We long for that time. That time is coming. And Lord, I hope it's soon. Amen? Amen. We long for that time. We, we are eager for that time. We wait for that time. As Paul wrote in Romans 8, 22 through 24, he says, for we know that the whole creation is groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. You know those weeds in your garden? That's the pains of childbirth of creation. Earthquakes, fires, all this stuff. That, that's what he means. The, all of creation is groaning together in the pains of childbirth. It, it has been subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it. Now look, we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit. We groan inwardly as we eagerly await adoption as sons. What is it? The redemption of our bodies. What are we waiting on? What's the culmination? What's the final thing? The glorification of our bodies. The resurrection of the saints. For in this hope, we were saved. This is a future glory. The Spirit of God dwelling within us is evidence of our presence in Christ. The fact that we have the Spirit of God gives us the confidence and the hope that we will, in fact, be raised from the dead on that day. And the Holy Spirit serves as the basis of our future hope. Do you have the Holy Spirit dwelling in you? If you do, then congratulations, you know that your body is going to be raised up on the last day. Praise the Lord. Hallelujah. What is sown perishable will be raised imperishable. What is sown broken will be raised unbroken. Dang it. I thought I was going to have a nugget there. Allow myself to introduce myself. Getting back on track. Now watch. Until that day, while we, while we eagerly await it, and we long for it, and we're praying for it, until that day, the resurrection serves as a motivation to endure hardship. The resurrection of our bodies serves as motivation to endure the loss of all things. Look at what Paul says in Philippians chapter 3, verses 8 and 10. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ, that I may know him in the power of his resurrection and I may share his sufferings becoming like him in his death. The idea, the, the, the confident assurance that there is going to be a day that my earthly lowly body is raised up out of the ground to dwell with Jesus in paradise forever gives me the confident assurance that I can endure hardship in this life and it will be worth it. That I can suffer for Jesus in this life and it will be worth it. The resurrection is where we set our hope for justice, for vindication, for repayment. You ever wonder, God, How long will you allow me to suffer? How long long will you allow me to go without? Don't you see that I've given this up for your sake? And his response is, yes, I see. Yes, I see. And you will be repaid at the resurrection. Jesus was once at a banquet with a lot of powerful and influential people. And he turned to the host, and he said to him in Luke chapter 14, when you give a dinner or a banquet, do not invite your friends or your brothers or your relatives or your rich neighbors, lest they also invite you in return and you be repaid. But when you give a feast, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed because they cannot repay you. For you will be repaid at the resurrection of the just. So the resurrection, the future resurrection of our bodies and the eternity that we're going to spend with heaven ought to inspire incredible sacrificial love on our part. That rather than just doing for people that can do for us in return, that we should spend our lives doing for others who cannot repay us. Knowing that on the resurrection day, God will repay us according to his abundant grace. And he will not be stingy. In fact, the Bible says that he wants to show us the incredible kindness of his mercy. So, the resurrection, we set our, our minds on the future hope of resurrection and of life with Jesus Christ and a glorified body forever. And we say, okay, Lord, I can endure hardship in the life here now. I can endure people attacking. I can endure suffering in my body. I can endure the loss of things. Because, Lord, ultimately what this life is about is your glory and preparing for eternity. And I'm waiting to be repaid, not today, not here, but at the resurrection. As we prepare for communion now, this reminds me of what many people called a hard saying in John chapter 6. Jesus said, Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. Now, Jesus knows the crowd that's following him. The context is he is fed the 5,000, he gave them free dinner. The next morning, they're looking for him. Not because he has words of life, but because they want breakfast. Lots of people will associate with Jesus for the benefits that they get from him. And he said something that they basically all turn around and walk away. He says, whoever (laughs) feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life. Now, Jesus doesn't mean physically. He's talking about spiritually. Spiritually. But fleshly, carnal, selfish people cannot understand spiritual things. They followed him because they they wanted something that he could give. They, 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 They wanted the benefits. They weren't trying to follow him because he was the way, the truth, and the life. They were trying to follow him to get free food. Maybe because they wanted him to bless their marriage. Maybe, maybe they thought, well, if, 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 if we follow him or associate with him, and maybe we give something to him, then he'll give us ten times as much back. You see where I'm going with this? And they said, when, when, when you say something spiritual like that, that's a hard saying. And maybe some of you are struggling with with this concept of resurrection from the dead. That's a hard saying, I, I will admit it to you. It is a hard saying. You're gonna die and your body's gonna come out of the grave. But here's the truth. It doesn't matter if you believe this or not. You're gonna die and your body's gonna come out of the grave. The only thing that, that matters, the only thing in question here is where you are going to live for eternity? Listen to what Jesus said in John chapter five. Do not marvel at this. He's talking about resurrection. Don't marvel at this. For an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out. Those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of life. Of judgment you're gonna die and you're gonna come out and you're either gonna go to the resurrection of life and you're gonna be included in the Lamb's Book of Life and you're gonna be ushered into heaven forever in a glorified body or you will be sent away cast out into a real place called hell forever you will live forever question is where? You want to assure that you are the one that's going to be raised to the resurrection of the just? You believe the gospel. You repent of your sin. You accept his propitiation. And those of you who have done that, man, if we would be one. Man, if the only thing that got us fired up. The only thing that that we really put some teeth into was the mission of God in the world. What could he do? Paul tells us to examine ourselves as he speaks to the Corinthians about communion. He says, whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. That's why we do communion the way we do. We present an opportunity for you to self-examine. And I want you to ask yourself, do I believe in my heart that God raised him from the dead? That, that the body of Jesus was broken, the blood of Jesus was poured out to make me righteous before God by faith in him. Do I believe that? The answer is yes, brother and sister, join with this community as we observe the Lord's Supper. If the answer to that is no, you can either pass or you can repent. Repent. And I want you to repent. And I want you to join. But you need to examine yourself so that you're not guilty of profaning the sacrifice of Jesus Christ and denying what he has done for you. Amen? Amen. Father, we love you. We thank you for Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. The hope that we have that we will, in fact, spend eternity with you in heaven Lord, you raised him from the grave. You raised him from the dead. And because you raised him from the dead, we have confident assurance that you're also gonna raise us to be with you. And if you didn't raise him, then all of this is nothing, and I'm talking to the ceiling. But Lord, we know and we believe that Jesus is in fact alive forevermore. And we eagerly await his return. In Jesus' name, amen. And so if you're in the Quad Cities, let me invite you to personally join us in person for our gatherings on Sundays at 9 a.m. and 1040. If you're not in the Quad Cities, I want to encourage you to go find a local church that teaches the Bible, that serves the community, that loves Jesus, that gives grace. Well, hey, thanks again for watching, and we hope that you were blessed.